Good morning. So three quick things. First, I'm Patrick. Uh, Aaron's out of town today, so he asked me to to come, and I was happy to do so because I like being here. Uh, I'm a church planter in North Minneapolis. Uh, a handful of people here were uh, just up visiting us, including uh, Keely and her parents. So that was that was great. I I wanna. A note on the child dedication. I'm so happy you said it's it's serious. You know, child dedications are so they're so cute that sometimes we forget they're serious. We're we're praying for that little girl that she would grow up and she would pick up a cross and follow Jesus. And we're praying for that because we know that's the best thing in the world to do. To know Jesus. Uh, in his in his suffering, and we and we pray that that she would know Jesus uh, that way, and that we would know her forever as she attains the resurrection uh, from the dead. Uh, I had my wife do the scripture reading. I like to do that because um, I want you to know I'm not uh, coming here with you know my own kind of thoughts. That's not the goal. I sit under the word as she reads, and then I explain the word, okay? So uh, it's a different church tradition. A lot of churches around the world do that. But there's some value in that, uh, I think, and that helps me remember that, hey, this, this is not my idea. Uh, these are the words of Scripture. And if all you hear is the words of Scripture this morning and forget all of my analogies and things like that, that'll be pretty good. Um, this is a very serious passage of, of scripture. Um, in it, Paul is concerned that the Philippians are going to miss out on something great because they had something cheaper. I was thinking this week about one of my least favorite memories of when I missed out on something big because I didn't want to give up something little. I was 19 years old, uh, living on my own for the first time. I was desperate and poor. I live in a poor community, so I don't like to throw out that word uh, haphazardly, but I was really, really poor. <laughs> I had no idea how to, how to live as an adult. And one day, I went to the gas station, and I had no money. And I, I tried to use the IOU system with the cashier, but evidently no one but my parents do that. And the guy behind me heard... Uh, my desperation, and he gave me, I don't know, five or ten bucks, enough to get back home and never drive again. <laughs> About a year later, um, I, I had settled into adulthood. Uh, I was just getting engaged, uh, finally had some disposable in income for the first time in my life, and I finally felt like I I'm worth something. You know, I'm, I'm a man. I can, I can take my fiancé out on a real date that's more than just Perkins Coffee. I, I felt so good about myself. And it was in this season of my life that my friend Kyle told me about Bitcoins. Now, I still don't understand Bitcoins, but he explained it to me. He said, don't worry about it, but they're going for about $20 a coin right now. And I think they'd be a good investment. And I thought, you know what? I finally have some disposable income. I bet I could spend 100 bucks and buy five of those. I was really interested 
but I, I just forgot. I can't remember. It must have been a year or two later. I heard about Bitcoins again, and they were going for $2,500 a share. I was upset, and I was grumpy. <laughs> but it's like, you know what? Now the price is too cheap. I can't afford $2,500. Well, I could, but I didn't want to. I didn't forget about Bitcoins this time, but I tried not to think about it too much. And a couple years later, I heard about Bitcoins again. Uh, at their peak, I believe it was 2017, Bitcoins were going for, each Bitcoin was going for $19,783.21. Times five, I know. <laughs> Riverwood supports our ministry. Not if I had bought Bitcoins, when I need that. Uh... So, sorry about that. I can't remember what I spent the 100 bucks on. I can't. Even as I try and think about this, I think, what did I spend the 100 bucks on? I have no idea. Let's go to verse 1 of Philippians 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 3, 1 through 11 is a very serious passage. In it, Paul is deeply concerned about the church at Philippi. There's a false teaching that's going around, and Paul wants them to watch out. But in this very serious passage of Scripture, that's about watching out. Paul doesn't begin with watch out. What does Paul begin with? Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Christians are not called to be brains on a stick. The Father did not send the Son into the world so that we could just have a new formulation of faith. The Father and Son did not send the Spirit into the world so we could just have uh, new and better ideas about God. No, the God of infinite joy created you and came for you. And His Spirit, His Spirit is drawing you so that you can find eternal joy in Him. God commands us to rejoice. How great is that? Rejoicing is a command, and that's the very thing we want the most. He calls us to replace our anxiety with rejoicing. He calls us to find life, true life, together in himself with all God's people who are bought, bought with the precious blood of the life of God's only begotten Son, Jesus you were created to find joy in God, so rejoice. Rejoice when you're happy. Rejoice when you're sad. You can rejoice at all times because we're rejoicing in the Lord. Paul's writing this from prison. A number of preachers in my neighborhood are driving Cadillacs and are making a lot of money off people by manipulating them into giving them lots of money. And Paul's writing this from chains. Paul's gospel is better. Paul's gospel is more authentic. Paul didn't need a Cadillac. He found joy in the Lord, even in chains. Rejoice. The second part. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Paul is writing so that the people at Philippi would be safe. Paul cared about the safety 
of the Philippian church. I'm so happy to be alive in this time of renewed concentration on church planting. I love seeing churches planted. I love being a church planter. Starting a church, though, it's not enough. The church at Philippi was the very first church planted in Europe. Think about that, 2,000 years later. This church was the very first church planted in Europe. We see that in Acts chapter 16. A woman named Lydia converts, gives her life to Jesus, and she's the first a person written down, at least, who we see turn to Jesus in Europe. I prayed for a church to be planted in Waverly. I've told this story every time. I'm not going to tell it again in the sermon because I always go long. I think I could cut that Riverwood story out. But I did pray for a church to be planted here. And when I met Aaron, I was so happy. But the work doesn't begin or it doesn't end when a church gets planted. The work of faith doesn't end when an individual comes to belief. Paul knew this. Paul knew there were real dangers in and around the people in the church at Philippi. You might not think there are real dangers in the world as you step into a typical evangelical church on a Sunday morning. So many churches feel like an hour of family-friendly entertainment. Very little message about cross, certainly not about carrying a cross. In these churches, warnings of false teachers seem out of place. But we need to realize daily that we live in the same age as the church at Philippi 2,000 years ago. The New Testament, they said, you're in the last days. And we're still in the last days. And what that means is that the next day we're looking forward to is Christ coming back and making all things new and cleansing the world of all lies. But we're not there yet. Until then, we need to understand that there are real dangers surrounding us. The Apostle Peter, he warned us that the devil prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. We're in the midst of wartime. Paul knew it. Peter knew it. We know Christ will win the battle. We know Christ will fill every square inch of the world with his love. But the battle's not over yet. We're in the midst of wartime, and too many of us act like we're on vacation. I have seen so many friends fall away from Jesus. I have seen so many friends led astray by their passions. I've seen so many friends choose the world's approval over God's approval. Riverwood. You must keep trusting in Jesus. There is no hope outside of Jesus. Paul was writing to this church for their safety. He saw a danger and he wanted this church he loved to be safe from this danger and to find joy in Jesus. God wants the same thing for you. Verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So the danger Paul is writing about here is the Judaizers. Uh, simply put, the Judaizers were people who believed it wasn't enough just to trust Christ. You must trust Christ. And if you're a man, be circumcised. 
uh, and all people follow the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament, like don't eat pork, things like that, and rest on the seventh day. Paul is deeply concerned about this teaching because Christ taught that he came to fulfill the law. This teaching, and Paul knew this, this teaching looks to add to Christ's finished work. It diminishes Christ's glory. So what must you do to be saved? Paul said, believe that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Believe in Christ. Trust in him alone. Nothing, not circumcision, Sabbath obedience, nothing can add to your faith. Paul begins this verse with, look out for the dogs. Okay, don't be offended if you like dogs. I have a dog. I like my dog. All right? I don't, I don't call my dog, uh, you know, I don't call him my son or anything like that. That's weird. I, I, didn't, I don't quite get that, but um, that's fine, I guess. Uh, but I like my dog. I even pray for my dog. Proverbs, I can't remember where one day I was reading. I said, you know, pray for your beast. And I thought, all right, I'll pray for my beast, Rue. <laughs> I love him. All summer long, uh, kids from the neighborhood come by. Kids that, uh, you know, those of you who got to come up, a lot of you met uh, these kids. And, and they, they live in rental properties. And so they can't have dogs. And it's great for a, a little boy to have a dog. And so I get to share my dog. Uh, with, with these little boys, they come by all summer long and they give them walks. And that means I don't have to give them a walk and it's really great. But in this society, dogs were not cute. None of them made the Christmas card. None of them wore sweaters. Dogs, dogs roamed around looking for food. Dogs roamed around and they prowled around and they would bite people in the streets. This is not a society where dogs were cute. This is a society where dogs were predators, annoying predators. What's Paul saying? Look out for those who are prowling around telling you you must do more than simply trust Jesus to be saved. Look out for those who tell you you must follow the ritual practices of the Old Testament in order to be a part of God's kingdom, God's people. Today, look out for those who come to your door, I don't know what it's like in Waverly, in North Minneapolis, it's very, very common, who come to your door telling you that the Bible is perverted, that, that, the, that this, our documents are really flawed and they got the totally wrong message and that they have a new and better testament for us, okay? That is something you could get away with in the 7th century, and that's where Islam starts. The, the Bible was perverted. That's something you could get away with in the 19th century, and that's when Mormonism started. That is not something you can get away with the 21st century uh, because we have very, 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 very old documents that we discovered in the last 100 years or so that prove that was a lie all along. Okay, So that, that's, my, that's what you can tell the person at your door. Look out for those people. Look out for those people who say, uh, who try to manipulate you into saying, well, a true Christian would vote for fill in the blank. The world is filled with people who are trying and seeking to manipulate Christians and saying that their simple, joy-filled faith is not enough. 
Look out for them. Verses 3 through 6. Verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. These teachers were going around with their noses in the air. They were the true people of God. They felt confident because they had a way of life that proved to them they were truly right with God. They carried around the physical evidence of circumcision to remind them they were true believers. They had something physical, something tangible that was proof to them, they felt, that gave them confidence that they're truly a part of the kingdom. Have you ever been around people like this? Have you ever been around people like this and wondered, am I truly one of God's people? Is there something I don't have? Is there, is there something that I'm not doing that will result in me being outside the kingdom? I, I have faith in Jesus, but I don't have this. I don't do this. I fill in the blank. Am I really part of God's covenant people? If anyone is going to have confidence in the flesh, it'd be Paul. Look at what Paul says. You think you have confidence in the flesh? I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Not as an adult. No, on the eighth day. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. What tribe am I from? I don't know. Benjamin, Jacob's second favorite son. I was, I was a Pharisee. I was a teacher of the law. I was a leader in the early movement against these early Christians. Paul helped kill Christians. He hated Christians. He, he was so zealous. He cared so much about what he thought to be right that he took violent action against these Christians. If anyone was going to have confidence in the flesh, it would be Paul. Imagine that Paul here is talking to people who are wondering if they can measure up. They weren't circumcised. They weren't Hebrews. They didn't fit, it, they didn't fit in with the religious elite. They didn't get to sit in the front rows at big Pharisee conferences. Have you ever wondered if you're truly part of God's people? Have you ever wondered if God really loved you? Or maybe you've thought, well, I know God loves me because he has to. But does, does he really like me? I mean, he can't like my prayer times like he likes that missionary's prayer times. He can't like my prayer times like he liked Jim Elliott's prayer times, like Charles Spurgeon's prayer times, like the Apostle Paul's prayer times. He, he, he must not love me like he loves that mom who's got it all together on Instagram. 
How does Paul respond to these false teachers who said these non-Jewish believers need something more than faith to be part of God's kingdom? How does he respond? Paul said, look, if you're trusting in Christ this morning, you belong to God. You are part of an eternal plan. You, your faith is a miracle that's a fulfillment of God's plan that he made before the foundation of the universe. God, who is Father and Son and Holy Spirit, created the world to display his glory. God created people to know him and to love him and to reign on this earth with him. But that wasn't enough for the very first people. They didn't want to love God. They wanted to be gods. They didn't want God to run the world. They wanted to run the world. This brought sin. This brought death. And everything spiraled out of control. In 2019, do I have to convince you that everything spiraled out of control? Watch the news for five seconds. Hop on Twitter if you're courageous enough for 45 seconds. Better yet, look into the thoughts of your own heart. You'll see that things aren't right. But God had a plan. God made a promise that sin and death would not have the final word. In Genesis 3, God promised, and that's the first book of the Bible, third chapter, Genesis 3, God promised there would be a man who would come and he would conquer sin and death. Then in Genesis 12, God goes to Abraham and he promises Abraham that he's going to give Abram more descendants than the stars in the sky. He told him that the whole world would be blessed through Abram. This man God promised in Genesis 3 is his only begotten son, Jesus, who came to earth. The, the people who are the true descendants of Abram, making up greater population than the stars in the sky, they're all who are trusting in God's only son, Jesus. In Jesus, the Messiah, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That doesn't mean everyone will be blessed. That means that everyone who trusts in Christ will be blessed forever and ever and ever and ever. God is right now working through his church by the power of his spirit to spread the best news of his eternal son to every nation, tribe, and tongue. And he's doing it right here in Waverly. Your faith this morning, your faith is a miracle God planned before the foundation of the world. Your testimony is not boring. Your testimony is not boring. Do you know why? Because you're a sinner. And by nature, you hate God. But God stepped in by his spirit and gave you new life. Go to a cemetery, look at a tombstone, and say, rise from the dead. Nothing will happen. That's conversion. No one comes to faith in God without a miracle of the Holy Spirit. If you're believing in Jesus this morning, it's because God did a miracle in you. If you love God, that's because God did a miracle in you. Don't let anyone tell you that you do not belong in the people of God. You belong to God. You are among his people forever. Verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul told these people who were wondering if they really belonged that, hey, I have had what the Judaizers had and more. I had better things. I had more religious cred than the Judaizers Judaizers have. And I suffer, I call it as loss. Rubbish, he says. But he really doesn't say rubbish. Okay, very rarely will I go on and critique, you know, I'm not smart enough, you know, to critique a translation. I'm going to do that this morning. Okay, rubbish, Greek word, something like school ball on, equals dung. Okay, I have never, I grew up in Springville, Iowa, about an hour and 15 minutes south. I grew up in Springville, Iowa. I live in North Minneapolis. I have never heard someone say rubbish when they're really passionate, except for actually last week I heard someone say that. And I thought, you are just the most pretentious person I've ever met. (laughs) Rubbish. Anyway, totally ruined that too, because before that I never heard anyone say it. I've never heard anyone. And maybe all those uh, translators of all these Bibles, maybe they're British. And maybe that's what's why they use rubbish. But I've never heard an American say that, except for that one lady. But she wanted to act British, I think. <laughs> Garbage, which is in the uh, New International Version, that's a little better. But it still doesn't quite get at what Paul's saying. My little brother-in-law, he's 10, he's with us this morning. I can't actually say what Paul actually is pretty much saying in this passage, because he's here. <laughs> Let's just say Paul says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as crap. I don't don't say this to distract you. I don't mean for this to be a fun little piece of Bible trivia for you this morning. I want you to feel what Paul's saying. Paul's a smart guy. Paul's not throwing around words like this. The only time this word's used in the New Testament. He's a smart guy. All right, he's not, you know, tweeting 10 times a day. He, he's using this word very intentionally. Paul is not just saying, the things I used to boast in are useless. He's saying, the things I used to boast in are disgusting. Works-based religion made Paul want to vomit. Imagine being one of these Philippians. And thinking, do I really? Is really my simple faith? Is that really enough? I don't know as much as these guys know. I, I'm not circumcised. You know, imagine being a woman and saying, I, I can't get circumcised. I can't carry around that. Am I just a second class citizen? Imagine someone like Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, coming up to you and saying, you know what? I've had what they have. It's crap. It's nothing. They don't have what you have. You have the Messiah. You have the the fulfillment of this whole book. Paul considered these as loss. Why? So he can gain Christ. Verse 9. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God 
that depends on faith. I don't, I do sometimes miss living in Iowa, but I don't around election time. Over the next year and a half, you're going to see people increasingly use Jesus as a political tool. You'll see this from Republicans, you'll see this from Democrats, you'll see this from socialists, you'll see this from libertarians. I am so worried for the church right now. 2016 was a mess. Oh, I saw people stop talking to their friends. I saw people lose, leave their churches. I'm so worried for my people in North Minneapolis. I'm so worried for y'all at Riverwood. In this time in American history, it seems Jesus is a remarkably good political prop. I'm seeing so many people put their crosses down and pick up their fake Jesuses. Fake Jesus isn't a New Testament term. A New Testament term is antichrist. That's what a fake Jesus is, an antichrist. Don't think of some guy at the end of the world. Antichrists are all around us. They're just people who are pretending to be Jesus. The Republican Jesus is an antichrist. The Democrat Jesus is an antichrist. The Libertarian Jesus is an antichrist. The Socialist Jesus is an antichrist. This isn't to say that following Jesus doesn't inform our politics. I'm not saying that at all. I think pol politics are important. We should learn how to wrestle with our faith and how we understand how government should work. I'm not saying politics aren't important. What I'm saying is that we must never, ever, ever be okay with Jesus being used as one party's political mascot. We must never let him be used for that. And when we see it in our own political tribes, we need to call it out. Democrats always think that that's what Republicans do. Well, they do it just as much. But I can't say that in Minneapolis, so I'll say it here. And I can't say the reverse there. It's both true. For Paul, Jesus wasn't a means to an end. What was Paul's longing? Look, verse 9. To be found in Christ. Paul's greatest wish was to be found in Christ. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the prize. God is triune. This triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, created the world out of his perfect love. Happiness is best shared. It's true. And that's why God created people. Not because he was lonely, because great love makes more love. Makes more. Creates. And this triune creator God created you to know him. And he sent his son when we failed. He sent his son to bring us back. Your background can't keep you away from the kingdom. Your past can't keep you away from the kingdom. Your present shortcomings cannot keep you away from the kingdom. On the cross, Jesus took on everything that should have taken you away from the kingdom. Everything. Look to the cross. There's life there. There's forgiveness there. There's grace there. That's where we're found in God. Verses 10 and 11. 
So he wants that righteousness that's dependent on faith, that righteousness that's knowing God, that's being found perfect in God because Christ took on our imperfections on the cross and now we receive his standing with God. Now we're part of his covenant people. Verse 10, he says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul gave up a good standing to follow Jesus. And for Paul, that decision was easy. I don't think anything captures this, these 11 verses quite like a story Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13. You don't have to open there. Just one sentence, two sentences, one verse. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has to buy that field. If I, when I was 20 years old, if I could have known that I could have profited $98,816 or something like that, who's counting? If I could have known that I could have profited that for a hundred bucks. You wouldn't see me give that hundred bucks to buy those bitcoins. And you wouldn't say, wow, what a sacrifice. Man, this guy, I mean, he's really passionate about Bitcoin. You would say, no, that's, that's simple. That's easy, of course. It makes me, that, I might say it like it's funny. I hate that Bitcoin story. I hate thinking about it. It's such a good sermon analogy that I keep using it. But it's a sick joke. It makes me sick to think about. How worse will it be for those who are in hell for eternity? Because they cared more about their own independence than finding true life and the love of God. How worse will it be for those who are in hell for eternity because they cared more about other people's perceptions of them than the good future God planned for them? How worse will it be for those who are in hell for eternity because they wanted to be seen as moral instead of picking up their crosses and following Jesus? How worse will it be for those who are in hell forever because they sought to change the clear commands of God in an effort to be on the, quote, right side of history? How worse will it be for those who are in hell forever because their moralistic pride kept them from seeking God's free gift of grace? God is offering you eternal joy this morning. It's not a sacrifice. Whatever he's calling you to give up is dung. You're not going to look back 50 million years from now in this perfect earth and think, man, I really miss that sin. Don't miss out on the kingdom because you are hesitant to leave behind the excrement the world says is most important. Is Jesus calling you to repent of something this morning? Is Jesus calling you to give up something for the kingdom? Maybe it's a good thing. 
But is Jesus calling you to give it up? What suffering do you fear? What happiness, what comfort do you worry you'll lose out on that could be greater than life with Jesus forever? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you say to rejoice, so I will rejoice. You are good. You forgave me. You have new mercies for all of us every morning, Lord. I pray for those, both who know you and who don't know you, to look to the cross this morning. On that cross where your son Jesus died, your wrath was satisfied. There's no wrath anymore in the arms of our Heavenly Father. Help us believe that. Amen.